Good morning. It's good to be with you guys today. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors, a senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Hacienda Heights, uh, just 20 or 30 minutes north of us. Uh, I am one of the four. And being here together this morning reminds me of uh, the encouragement of the partnership of the gospel or in the gospel. And so I know that Bethany Baptist and PJ himself, even before Bethany Baptist, has been praying for me and uh, First Baptist Church there. And we ourselves have been praying for you guys for years as well, and PJ and his wife and his family for even longer than that. So praise God for partnership in the gospel. Uh, So please know that we regularly, in our Sunday morning gatherings, uh, do lift you guys up to God uh, as our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It seems that with every significant life event or a holiday or even the new year, comes renewed hopes. You can just take a look at social media. Someone might celebrate a birthday, and that person declares that all will be better this year than it was last year. I'm going to lose a few more inches, lose a few more pounds, make a ton more money, be a more beautiful me. Now, I'm not knocking goals. I set goals, and I review goals regularly. So where the goal and the effort to meet the goal is good, I think that should be encouraged. But if a new year and human effort is what we think will ultimately deliver us from all of our problems, then we are certainly in for a rude awakening. If you think about it, how can man's strength or man's goals or man's effort be what ultimately delivers man? Man is the reason we are in trouble in the very first place. All we need to do is turn on the news to see that other people have problems. We look at our neighbors and we know that they have problems. And if you know yourself well enough, you know that you certainly have problems as well. Now, I don't intend to unnecessarily discourage anyone on this beautiful Sunday. On the contrary, I want to be a herald of the good news. It's just, friends, the good news is not finally that man is the answer to man. But the ultimate answer to the problem of man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one who alone can bear our hopes. That, friend, is the good news for every single day, birthday, new year, every new life event. That is the good news. Please join me in turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, and we will look at verses 1 to 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and our passage today helps fix our eyes on Christ the righteous one, who alone can bear our hopes. Christ the righteous one, who alone can bear our hopes. If you're taking notes, that's kind of like the main idea that we're going to be looking at today. Christ the righteous one, who alone can bear our hopes. If you're visiting for the first time, we are in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there is only one Gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel just means good news. There is only one good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. But in the Bible, if if you're not familiar with the Bible, there are four Gospel accounts written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so together, they, they focus, they ultimately present a beautiful stained glass picture of who this Jesus is. And the Gospels, they just regularly help all readers ask and answer the question, who is this Jesus, and why is his life, his death, and his resurrection important for everybody? Why is it good news for mankind? So with the question of who is this Jesus, with that in mind, let's go to our passage for this morning, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to them, to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. If you recall the main point here. The main idea, Christ is the righteous one who alone can bear our hopes. And that sentence, we're just going to break down into two different points. Point number one, if you're taking notes, Christ is the righteous one. And just keep in mind, right, this point is much longer than the second point, so don't get worried when we get to point number two. And then point number two is who alone can bear our hopes. And I'll repeat those later on. So, but to, to answer the question of who is Jesus, we see first, this is point number one, that Christ is the righteous one. Christ is the righteous one. The passage really draws our attention to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Did you notice what Satan repeatedly asks of Jesus? It's a really interesting question. If you look there in verses 3 and verse 5, he says there, If you are the Son of God, why does Satan ask this? Does Satan really not know that he is the Son of God? I mean, we know from the book of James that even the demons believe. Satan actually knows that he is the Son of God. But what our passage shows us is that Satan is testing Jesus to see just what kind of son he will be. The tension is thick, okay? The tension is thick, especially when you consider, let's just say, Matthew 3.13. So you're looking, we're looking at context here. You see the baptism of Jesus? Go ahead and look there. Just scan the passage. Uh, we know that Jesus came to Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And eventually what happens in this baptism? You look there in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened from him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven, that is the Father, said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But then here in our passage today, right after that account... In the very next passage that follows right on the heels of his baptism, we have Satan attacking the Son of God come to take away the sins of the world. Satan here has his scope, so to speak, directly set on Christ, the Son of God. So while God has plans for Christ, Satan does as well. For God, he sent Christ to go to the cross, right? To take on flesh, to live the righteous life that people could not because we had all sinned against our Creator. The demands of the law were certainly upon us. He sends Jesus Christ, takes on flesh, lives the righteous life, fulfills the demands of the law, dies on the cross as a wrath-bearing substitute for us, and there he defeats sin, death, and Satan. 
winning forgiveness of sins, redemption, justification, adoption into his family. If you look at God's declaration on Christ, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then in this temptation, it's almost as, long, it's almost as if Satan is throwing everything he has to make this beloved son a disobedient son. Let's now turn to the clash between the Son of God and the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians says, describes Satan there. The structure of the passage is pretty clear. Verses 1 and 2, if you just go ahead and scan those, they set the scene. And in verses 3 to 10, we have Satan tempting Jesus three different times. And in it all, Christ remains righteous, praise God. And we're going to look at these temptations in turn. The first onslaught, we're looking at these temptations in turn. The first temptation, the first onslaught, or the first test is there in verse 2. This addresses satisfaction. If you're taking notes, you can sit right there, satisfaction test. Right there in verse 2. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Satan's first attempt to derail Christ from going to the cross, right, to making it there successfully, accomplishing his mission, what exactly is Satan going after here? I think it's important not only to look at Satan's question, but then also Jesus' response. If you look at Satan's question, you know, on one level it's clear. Satan just straight up, he just goes after Jesus' physical hunger. Jesus' physical hunger. The passage says he was fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He wasn't eating anything. So Jesus was hungry. It's plain and simple. But is Satan's ultimate aim to see that Christ, your Christ, had a full stomach? No, it's not. There's such more involved here than Jesus' physical hunger. You look there, Jesus' response, verse 4. It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So while this test has to do, certainly with the satisfaction of the stomach, ultimately it has to do with spiritual satisfaction. Spiritual satisfaction. Satan wants to see whether or not the Son of God's heart hungers and depends on his Father and his Word. This is why it is a satisfaction test. Friends, this is not the first time that Satan used this type of tactic to steer God's people away from him to move God's people's hearts away from God. If you remember Old Testament Israel, right, when they were being rescued by divine intervention and power, God was rescuing them from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. Even though God was delivering his people after 400 years of slavery, captivity under Egypt and Pharaoh, rescuing them from what was basically a planned genocide as Pharaoh was eliminating all the, the Hebrew babies, even though God was so committed to blessing his people, and bringing them into the land that he promised them through the Red Sea, into the desert where he fed them, you know, bird and bread from heaven, still they grumbled after God, right? And they even say, God, take us back to Egypt so we can enjoy, basically, Egyptian Wagyu steaks, right? He says, take us back to Egypt where we can have our meat pots and all of our vegetables. Israel, also called God's son, was certainly a disobedient son. Here, I think it's so fascinating that Jesus Christ, who is in the desert for 40 days, seems to be thinking about Israel's experience of their desert trek of 40 years. 
The words he uses here to rebuke Satan are the very words of God to Israel in the desert, right before they were going to take the promised land. This is Deuteronomy. In fact, all of Jesus' quotations here from Scripture in this passage comes from the book of Deuteronomy, a book of basically Moses' sermons where they're right on the cusp of the promised land, and he's telling them, reminding them, look, be faithful, you will be blessed. Turn away from God, and you will experience curses. There they are on the cusp of the promised land. Israel knew that they were a disobedient people, and there stands Moses preparing them to enter into the promised land, reminding them man is to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here comes Satan. He's using this tactic again, it seems. It worked in the past, and so here he goes again against the Son of God. He seems to use the tactic again. But Satan is in for it, isn't he? He's not dealing with national Israel, a sinful nation who again and again and again turned their backs on God. He's dealing with the righteous Son, God the Son. And we know, friends, that Jesus succeeds where Israel fails, where Israel wished to be satisfied by Egypt and Pharaoh. Christ was indeed satisfied in God alone and on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' heart was fully given over to God and His will. And it's Satan who wants to lead him ever so subtly away from God. Asking Christ to turn stones into bread is not ultimately about whether Jesus can actually work the miracle, nor is it ultimately about satisfying physical hunger. Satan wants Christ to wander away from the will of God. Christian, you see that this seemingly little, this seemingly little request is sinister. It is evil. It's as if Satan, the opposer of God, is calling Christ to walk a little more like me, Jesus. Follow in my stride and just live a little bit. Does not the path to the cross and doing the Father's will just have a little bit of wiggle room for yourself to carve out? And this wiggle room, it it has to do really with who Christ listens to. Who does he take counsel from? Who does he take and find his satisfaction in? I mean, can you just imagine if Christ gave in, if he just could have carved out this little bit of wiggle room on the way to the cross, can you imagine what victory Satan would have had if Christ listened to him? What kind of Savior would your Savior be if he came to deliver saying, both God and Satan, you know, I've considered it, both God and Satan are actually good to listen to. But as Jesus knew, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. For Jesus, with God as Father, good Father, loving Father, all-knowing Father, wise Father, Father who is present with us, Father who preserves us, Father who, who gives us all of these wonderful promises and fulfills them all, being with God, He is satisfied, He is protected, even in death, friends. Even in death, God had given him the promise of raising him in three days. He is satisfied in God. Let's look at the second onslaught, the second test. This is a trust test, a trust test. Look there at verse 5. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city. It's kind of moving towards this climax, right? It's, It's upping the ante. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Here the devil brings Jesus to stand on what is mostly the southern wing of the temple. It's the highest peak, the highest point of the temple. From there, if you can imagine Jesus, he looks over the Kidron Valley. He sees the rolling hills, beautiful scene. He also looks straight down, 330 feet down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. Now, I kind of have a fear of heights. 
Can you imagine? He just looks straight down. You know that feeling that you get. Let's see what Satan is after here. Verses 6 and 7. But we need to look once again at Satan's attack and Jesus' response to figure out what Satan is after here. And he said to him, verse 6, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels... He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Here Satan is quoting, by the way, Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, basically. Clearly, Satan wants Jesus to put God to the test, but of course, the answer is the question is why. Now, once again, I don't think the, 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 the test is ultimately about whether or not God could rescue Jesus. That's not what this is about. It's not about God's ability. Satan wants Jesus to doubt whether God would save him. It's an entirely different question here. He wants Jesus to wonder, to doubt, to mistrust whether or not God would do what he said. Now, turn back to Psalm 91. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. If you're sitting next to uh, someone who's visiting, maybe they don't know their way around Scripture, just go ahead and lean over and help them get there. Or you can just uh, help that person read from your Bible. Psalm 91, prophecy about Jesus. In Psalm 91... You look there. This is what it says there. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's what he's quoting. It's almost as if Satan is saying, look, God said that he would indeed save you, save the Messiah, the greater son of David here in in, uh, Psalm 91. Let's see if that's really true. So once again, friend, you see that the test here is not about ability. God is able. The test is about whether or not God is trustworthy. Here, Satan tries to sow these seeds of doubt regarding God and his very character, his truthfulness, his goodness, and his faithfulness. You see Satan's mode of operation, friend, Christian? You see that it is so sly and despicable here. And there's a progression, at least here in, in the account of Matthew, You see the progression of how uh, Satan tempts Jesus Christ, right? In the first test, the first test, Satan tempts Jesus. And Jesus says, man is to live on the words of God alone. Well, Satan, it's almost like he comes along next and says, okay, well, what should I do then? I'm going to go after the words of God alone. Like the parable of the soils here. Here is Satan swooping in, trying to snatch up the word of God. Just like in the Garden of Eden, here is Satan twisting the word of God, trying to sow seeds of division, trying to get Christ to question the goodness and trustworthiness of God, just like he did Adam and Eve. But look there and see how Jesus combats Satan's wicked ways. Jesus says, it is also written. Here Jesus uses scripture to interpret scripture. Isn't that awesome? He uses scripture to interpret scripture. Well, guess what? It is also written here, do not test the Lord your God. This quotation as well is from Deuteronomy. Brings us right back to Israel in the desert and the many times that they tested God. Sadly, this was a a pattern for the Israelites there. God would save them from harm, right? Think about the 10 miraculous plagues that he put on Pharaoh. But then just a little while later at the Red Sea, when it seemed that Pharaoh and his army were going to destroy them, 
right? They thought that they were hemmed in, right? They had a sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army. Just imagine all the chariots kicking up dust. The Israelites, they think that they are done for. And so again, they question, even blame God for their situation. Time and time again, they blame God and judged him to be a God who has abandoned us, a God who does not love us in the midst of this trial that he is bringing us into. But again, friends, where Israel failed, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, succeeds and he resists the devil. He sees no need to test God because he knows that God is absolutely faithful and good. And he does not change with shifting shadows like the bodies of the universe, you know, the the planets and such. Instead, he knows that God is faithful. Just as Christ resisted turning the stones into bread, right, carving out wiggle room, so he refuses to test God. Instead, he trusts even in the plan for him to die on the cross. That's where all this is leading, right? He knows exactly where this is going. But instead, he's not, he doesn't feel hemmed in. He knows that the Romans and the Jews are going to kill him. He knows that the cross is before him. But yet, he trusts in God. Amazing. He knows that he's going to be raised to new life, just as, Christ, just as God, his Father, had promised. Let's look at the final test there in verses 8 to 10. This is a worship test. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Again, the ante is being, you know, he's upping the ante here. And he said to him, it's almost like he he just sort of gets rid of all the other stuff. You know, he stops using the word of God. He says, okay, here's the deal. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. In this final temptation, the devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain where, get this, Satan puts on an exclusive, invitation-only parade of kingdoms right before Jesus' eyes. We know exactly what Satan is after. The devil offers it all to Christ if you would only worship me. Christian, imagine that test. Imagine that test for you. Whatever it is that you might be tempted by, tempted with. Satan promises immediate satisfaction. Never mind the long-term consequences. To the average Christian, average Christian woman, Christian man, viewing this parade of overstimulation, just imagine your own mind drifting off into fantasy land You guys know what this is like. This is what temptation is like. If you go off into fantasy land thinking about everything that one could do, everything that you could be, all this, the world's kingdoms and their women and their money and their comfort and its security and its power, and all their splendor. If you would worship me, imagine Satan sliding that offer across the table, so to speak. Some of you guys are probably in sales, I imagine. You slide that offer over the table, and what are you taught? You, you just shut up. You just wait till the person says something. You want to see. You want to read how they respond and then respond appropriately, right? right? How long would you look, Christian? How long would you take a peek? Would you try on that suit? You know, put it on, see if it fits you or not. Look in all the world's mirrors, wondering how long the devil's deal stands. 
That's not how Jesus responds. What does he say there in verse 10? He says, go away, Satan. Maybe some of your other translations says, be gone, Satan. Get lost. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13. Jesus knew what the devil's sales pitch was aimed at. Life is not about gaining kingdoms and all their glory. And so in this rebuke to Satan, Jesus reminds him that life is only about, only ever about God's glory and honor and power going to him who possesses them. I imagine, I can imagine that as Jesus Christ is being tempted, right, what helped him resist all of this was looking right past the devil's charade to see Satan's pure folly. I mean, here is the devil attempting to give away what he doesn't own, to get what he doesn't deserve. This is pure folly. There stands the Savior of the world who just left his infinite amount of glory. You guys remember Philippians chapter 2, verse 5? Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Satan offers Christ that which Christ already owns. In terms of Philippians 2, this is the very reason why he does not see equality with God a thing to be grasped after. You guys understand that? He already owns it all. Because he already has, he doesn't have any need to grasp after anymore. He already has it all, which is why he can simply lay it down. He can truly and freely leave it all behind to fulfill his rescue mission to save sinners. And so therefore, Jesus' life is not about gaining earthly kingdom and glory because he knows that on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, he would have been raised in power, seated at the right hand of God where all things will be in subjection to him, where he will receive the glory he had from the beginning. Finding his satisfaction in God, trusting in God, living to serve God, Christ resists the devil and shows to all he is, in fact, God's beloved son, Christ the righteous one. You look there in verse 11. It concludes, then the devil left him. And angels came and began to serve him, ministering divine comfort to him. As this applies to our Christian lives, we can, in fact, take great hope that Christ is the righteous one. We can take great hope knowing that Christ is the righteous one. For the rest of our time here, let's briefly focus on why Christ alone can bear our hopes. Point number two, why Christ alone can bear our hopes. First, Christ alone can bear our hopes because he alone can deliver us. Because he alone can deliver us. We can, we can actually easily miss this. I mean, we, we've probably read this, you know, lots of times if we're Christians, if we grew up in the church. But the whole reason why Christ was in the desert battling why he was fighting, why he was resisting Satan, was so that he might free his people who were under the power and tyranny of sin. That's why he was there in the first place. This is what God was doing. He needed to be perfect. Christ needed to be perfect. He, always, he certainly was already perfect. But he needed to remain perfect so that he could be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. God himself was the one who was leading him into the desert. That's what it says. He was led, verse 1, up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
We don't quite know exactly how, like the specifics to the temptation, but we know certainly that Christ was tempted. He was a man, after all, the God-man, but he was certainly tempted here. The Bible says that all people are under the tyranny of sin since Adam and Eve. Since our very first parents sin, we are now sinners by nature, the Bible says. And not only are we sinners by nature, but we actually transgress the law of God. In other words, we are actually lawbreakers. So you've got nature and our doing. So we can't rely on ourselves, right? We can't rely on ourselves or any man for our own problems, which is what a lot of us want to do. I'm sure you guys know this. We want to rely on ourselves for our own righteousness to fulfill our own law, to be righteous before other people. Or if we're not going to do that, then we might rely on somebody else, a mere man. But of course, we can't look to fellow man to solve our problem. We created the problem, which is why God himself provides the solution in his son. God sends Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh. He sends the God-man to deliver sinful man. Here he is. He fights on behalf of his people as their trailblazer. The righteousness he fights for, that he maintains, that he battles for, Christian, do you realize that he secured that for you? Isn't it so encouraging that here is Christ doing for us what we could never do on our own? He is doing. He is winning victory. He's defeating sin, death, and Satan on the cross. He is doing that which we could never do for ourselves. This brings us to the second reason why Christ alone can bear our hopes. The second reason why Christ alone can bear our hopes is because he is our righteousness. Not only is he our deliverer, he is our righteousness. Christ not only does for us what we could never do for ourselves, he is for us what we could never be in ourselves. He is our righteousness. Thus, Christ is the righteous one and the, he is our very righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is for us what we could never be for ourselves. The Bible says that because of sin, it is impossible, it is impossible for any man to stand before the judgment of God in your own righteousness. Why is that? Because we don't have any. It's really simple. All of us have turned away from God. We have all rebelled. We are all unrighteous before the righteous God. And so we need a righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves. This is why God the Son once again took on flesh to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the perfect sacrifice, the, quote, lamb without blemish or spot, 1 Peter 1.19. He, quote, committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. In him there is no sin, 1 John 3.5. And so now, praise God, everybody and anybody who turns from their sins and believes upon him are counted righteous in Christ. Amen. In other words, regardless of, how, regardless of the fact that we stand before God as unrighteous sinners, regardless of that fact, all those who turn from their sin and believe on him, they receive the righteousness of God. That is, that they are declared righteous. They are imputed Christ's righteousness. And so they are justified before the holy God. Not because of any work on your own, not at all but entirely on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So friends, let me ask you, this Jesus that you've been hearing about, maybe you're exploring here, you're wondering too, this question, who is this Jesus and why is his life, his death, his resurrection, why is that important to us? 
Well, friends, the, the good news is that if you repent of your sins now and turn to Christ by faith, not of your own work, you will be saved. So you can cast yourself upon Christ, the, your deliverer. You can cast yourself upon Christ, your righteousness. And so then you would know forgiveness of sin. You would know adoption into his family. You would know free access and eternal access to his grace, into eternity, salvation, eternal life, and so be saved. So Christ calls you, friend, to turn from your sins and believe on him. Let me encourage you to talk to your friend who brought you. I'm sure they'd be very happy to talk to you more about this gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd be happy to talk to you uh, after the service as well. Christians boast and hope in the righteousness of Jesus Christ despite our own inherent right unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Thirdly, we can hope in Jesus Christ because he is our example. He is our example. Not only is he the Christian's deliverer, not only is he the Christian's righteousness, he is also the Christian's example. So while it is true that Christ has in fact defeated death and sin and Satan on the cross, we still, right, Christians still await that last day. When Christ finally returns, throws Satan to his final destruction, and where Christ will throw away the key to that prison once and for all. Until that day, Satan is not going out without a fight, right? This is why passages like Ephesians chapter 6 says that the Christian's battle is not finally against flesh and blood, but instead it is a spiritual battle. But friends, in this battle, maybe you feel like you were battling right now, in this battle, we don't need to fear because Christ is our example. We can rely upon him and learn to fight this battle in his strength. Just as Christ resisted the devil and trusted in God, right, leaning upon God's word. Well, friends, you realize that so can we. And certainly this is a growing process, but even the newest Christian, right? Friend, if you became a Christian yesterday, how awesome is it that even the newest Christian begins fighting like Christ because Christ has given us his very spirit. Amen. Isn't that encouraging? The spirit of Jesus, who of course you know, knows what it's like to battle Satan here in the desert, Christ himself gives that to his people. That's why the spirit of God is also called the spirit of Christ in the book of Romans. So Christian, you realize that in your battle, you have the spirit of Jesus who knows temptation and victory over sin dwelling in you. That's encouraging for us in our own fight of faith. And so we can, we can rely on Jesus. We can learn, certainly slowly, but nevertheless learn truly to love what God loves and to hate what he hates, all by the Spirit of God for those who are his children. In terms of Christ's battle, you realize that the weapon that he used against Satan was the living word of the living God the living word of the living God. Christ was intimately, right? He was intimately acquainted with the word of God and the God of the word here in the desert, this experience. As we look to Christ, Christians are called to live by his word because it comes from the very mouth of God. We can, in fact, we are called and commanded to live upon his word because it comes from the mouth of God. So, Christian, let me ask you, where are you going in your battle? Are you listening to the world's leadership podcasts ultimately as final instruction, final wisdom to figure out how to navigate life's difficult circumstances, whether it be in work or battling sin and temptation? 
Are you listening to the Stoics words of advice that tells you just how to strengthen yourself? And that's about all that it does. It never rises above sinful man. It never gets to Jesus. Are you listening to entertainment for your wisdom? How to navigate life's difficult issues, movies, television, magazines, social media? Or are you ultimately listening to the Word of God? It'd be really fascinating just to take a poll to figure out how exactly, or to look into your lives to see how exactly you, Christian, are relying upon the Word of God in your own temptation and in this walk of faith. I'll leave it for your elders to fill in some of the practicals on how to familiarize yourself with the Word of God through reading, through study, through prayer. But in it all, it is crucial to remember this. The Word of God is the living Word of your living God. In other words, He still speaks. He still intends that our hearts would be tethered to Him by His Word and Spirit. It is through His Word that God intends to secure your hearts to Him. So just think back to maybe somebody who took care of you growing up, whether it be your parents, somebody else, uncle, aunt, maybe your mentor. You remember how timely those words of encouragement and love were from the parent to the children, those words that offered such hope in that moment that you needed, such security, such courage to get up again and to run Friends, you realize that so God the Father's words work in similar ways for you? The difference though, friend, the entire difference is that we know that God's, God's word never fails. Absolutely not. Instead, it accomplishes everything that he intends it to. And so it helps us cast our eyes and hearts on Christ, the righteous one, who is our deliverer, Christ who is our righteousness, Christ who is our example. To conclude, we all need hope that comes ultimately from outside of ourselves. And this hope, friend, is found in Christ alone. He is the righteous one who alone can bear all of our hopes. Just as Paul said, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Naturally so, he is the one who helps us and the one who bears all of our hopes as all things were made through him and all things were made for him. As we fight our fight of faith, naturally we are to look to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are so faithful. And here, even as Jesus was battling Satan in the desert, the very fact that God the Son took on flesh and entered into the world, Lord, is evidence, such evidence of your great faithfulness. And we know, Lord, that the story ends in the death of Christ and his resurrection and his ascension, meaning that even in Christ's righteous life, even in Christ's sacrificial wrath-bearing death on the cross, even in his resurrection that showed and proved that Satan had no power over him, that all was achieved, that death was no longer required for your people, 
and in the ascension of Jesus Christ, where you, Christ, are seated at God's right hand, we know, Lord, all of those things are evidence of your great faithfulness. We know that you are steadfast in your love, in your mercy, and your grace. Lord, we ask that you would help turn our eyes upon you, and even in the ways in which we battle against Satan, where we battle against temptation, where we experience trials, where our faith is being so refined, and oftentimes we know, Lord, it is so difficult. We pray, Lord, that you would help cast our eyes upon you. Help us see, Lord, that you are our deliverance, so we would relinquish all of our own efforts or sinful efforts. Lord, we know that you are our righteousness, so, Lord, we pray that we would give up trying to strive for our own as if we actually could attain it. And we know, Lord, that you are our example. So, Lord, we pray that, we would, uh, st- that you would help steer our eyes from our own wisdom or the world's wisdom that we might rely on Christ who is our own wisdom. In your great name we pray these things. Amen.